The American dream has become a nightmare. Signs of the time are on cardboard on corners in town. Like a cancer that silently spreads, there's an unspoken fear. We're on our way down. We must take America back. Main Street to Wall Street. Hi, folks. I am Alan Watts, and this is Cutting Through the Matrix, standing in for John Stadmiller on the 25th of January, 2010. I'll be on for the next couple of hours, and there are so many topics, so many topics to cover because, as you know, we're going through the greatest changes in history for hundreds of of years, actually. It's actually been akin or linked, at least by the big boys themselves, like the Brzezinski's and Kissinger's, to the greatest changes uh, since really the beginning of the Industrial Revolution and the massive changes it caused across countries as they moved people into the, the big cities to take over the, the industry and produce in the factories, get them off the lands. Today, it's much, much bigger. It's literally a, a global enterprise. We're in a big global system, planned an awful long time ago. And all the mayhem we see with money crashes going up and down, all this kind of stuff, uh, the deculturalizing of nations, denationalization of nations, was all factored into it and planned that way uh, an awful long time ago. It's just that the, the ordinary people don't read the reports put out by the big think tanks, by the, the global um, meetings that the United Nations has, and that's because really the, the, the media keeps us distracted. Their job is not to focus as into what's happening in our time, their job really is, is simply to give you the results of the happenings as they happen, the effects, if you like, without telling the public the causes. They don't want the public to be involved. In fact, they actually call it a post-democratic system. In a post-democratic system, think tanks, elites, academia uh, run the show. That's what we've had, in fact, for an awful long time. And it's really to cough back in the 1960s as academia stepped in big corporations, big foundations with their parallel government, as they call it themselves, of thousands of non-governmental organizations pretending that they're all specialization, specializing in different parts of uh, society, took over and have had their, their annual meetings at the United Nations or one of the, the exotic countries to travel to we simply get little bits out the paper which really have nothing much to do with the meetings themselves, to be honest with you. I can remember when the 2005 meeting of the President, the President of the U.S., the Prime Minister of Canada and Mexico were shown on Canadian television down in Waco, Texas, signing the first open parts, the first open part. They had signed many... Uh, parts which were not open to the public, but the first open part to the integration of the countries, that was integration in security, integration in economics eventually, taxation that was mentioned as well, and commerce. So much so that the newspapers the following day uh, mentioned the fact that bureaucrats in Ottawa could apply for similar, similar positions 
in Washington, D.C., and vice versa. I taped that show. I had all the comments made by the the CFR um, journalists who attended who talked about this is the first part of a five-part signing, one part every year up to 2010 for total integration. I played that on the air to, uh, to listeners that year because it hadn't been broadcast in the U.S. Incredible, incredible. Uh, in the U.S., they saw the, the three leaders having a barbecue and a walk uh, along a field somewhere. I think it down at Bush's Ranch or something. But they didn't show you the meeting at, at Waco. It didn't show you what was actually happening. Ready for Real Talk Radio. You're listening to the National Intel Report with your host, John Statmiller. Hi folks, I am Alan Watts and this is Cutting Through the Matrix, standing in for John Statmiller, who's off today. And I was talking before the break about how uh, the whole century we've been living through was planned. It was planned just like uh, today's society and where it's to go uh, is planned. What's happening today, in fact, was planned before I was born, to be honest with you. When you read the writings from the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, the Trilateral Commission, all the big meetings that the United Nations has had since 1946 or so, and you find that they plan to bring in this integrated society um, through conflict, in a sense, through conflict, everything according to them is a science of conflict. And by understanding conflict, you can guide the conflicts, you can uh, guide the outcome of conflict, or the synthesis, or the combination of the two conflicting parties, the synthesis, you can guide it. And sometimes that the synthesis is actually what you're after. We want to take the public or the world here. How do we do it? Well, you need two opposing sides. You get them to go head to head. Then you get negotiations. Then you get a form of amalgamation, which is the synthesis. And you've changed society. You've guided society. The theory being in the Darwinistic sense that these characters go by. And they really do uh, believe in Darwin, uh, the theory of evolution, not just man himself, but the societies or ages of man, as they call it. And they claim that if a stagnation period comes in because there's no conflict, then they start to lose control and things break out of their control and everyone goes their own way, which doesn't sound too bad an idea at times for me when I look at what's been planned for us. And therefore, they guide conflicts, they create conflicts and guide them. Now remember what Carl Quigley, Professor Carl Quigley, talks about in his book Tragedy and Hope and his other book, The Anglo-American Establishment. These are two books which are utterly necessary if you want to understand how the system has been, how it is, where it's going, who runs it, the techniques that they use, and it also fills in all the blank spots in history uh, between the dates of battles and all the rest of it. It tells you why they actually happened, who was behind it, who benefited from it. And he was rather uh, proud of this and the techniques that they used, being the historian for the Council on Foreign Relations. He thought the world should know, and he thought actually that most folk wouldn't mind being guided in a post-democratic system by a supra-elite 
crew of intelligentsia and very wealthy people. He thought that was a natural order, being a natural snob himself. He also thought that left in the people's hands, you'd have utter chaos. That's a, a belief shared by all tyrannical type systems, that the masses themselves are simply incapable of managing themselves and that there'd always be chaos. That only the ones who have better education, you might even say better breeding, if we were to use feudalistic terms, are the ones who can manage life and their, manage their laws and and follow them, live in a sort of harmony. But for the peasantry, it could never be so. Don't ever believe that the Cold War was just about two systems going head to head. That was not the case at all. In fact, they needed a Cold War period between an enemy, two enemies after World War II to bring in the changes that they needed to also give them the reasons to tax the public, really put the money into research and development for a a post-Cold War society where people would be monitored from birth to death um, and give them all the technology, including the, the satellites up there, all the tracking mechanisms that are now being put into place and we're seeing what they're up there for. They've been up there for years, as I say, put up during the Cold War. For, for this particular time in history. Fifteen years before the Berlin Wall went down, it came out that Rockefeller led a team over to talk to the president of the Soviet Union fifteen years prior to it and, and told them, you know, what are you doing here? Uh, Europe will be totally amalgamated, the European Union, totally integrated within the next ten years or so. Um, and you'll be left in the cold. You see, the Russians supposedly were after a European bloc themselves. They ran on blocks, remember. That's the term that they used, the Soviet bloc. Europe did the same thing that the Soviet unions were doing. They amalgamated them all, and it's called the European bloc today, under the European Union. And therefore, it would only leave uh, the U.S., which didn't seem likely to amalgamate with the Soviet system, and other countries, even though, even though America or the US, Canada, uh, had already, in a sense, been Sovietized. We'd already been very liberal, as they call it. Khrushchev called it liberalism, uh, the communist term that was used in America. He says it's liberalism in America for the communist system. But they've been com- really liberalized for so many years that, and, and ap- adopted so many of the, the communist policies that there wasn't much difference between them. And remember the Rees Commission, I mention this so often because Norman Dodd is up on YouTube giving a, a talk. He was the representative who, went to, who was sent from the Congress to look into foundations, their power and influence. That's also the name of a book that came out about it. And they wondered why the big foundations owned by the richest men in the world, big international bankers, big magnets of power and industry worldwide, why these foundations based in America uh, would be funding what seemed to them to be left-wing or ultra-left-wing or really communist non-governmental organizations with uh, agendas that were definitely communistic. And he was told by the CEO of the Ford Foundation and others that their job was to so alter 
the culture within the United States and Western Europe that down the road, years down the road, they could blend it seamlessly with that of the Soviet Union. And to be honest with you, I think they've pretty well achieved that goal. If you go into the writings of Lenin, Lenin did not say uh, that the dictatorship over, I call it over, the proletariat, the people, would last forever. He didn't say uh, that at all. He said that maybe 70 years down the road, he said, uh, the, the Soviet system, this, this dictatorship will um, merge into a new system because of the conflicts with the West and capitalism. And it would, it would merge so well that uh, it would be neither communistic nor capitalistic. Well, the term they're using now openly is really what they were after in the first place, a world socialist society. And socialism the big banking boys, the big, uh, the richest people in the world can still be part of the system and still help run it, in fact, and they can still get all their socialistic policies in that sound really nice on the surface, and some of them certainly have, have helped public who, who've been put on unemployment or lost their jobs, that, that kind of stuff, basic stuff. That was definitely necessary. However, it was really for control over entire societies. If we remember that the Marxist system demanded centralization of power, and we saw that happening not only in the Soviet system, we saw it happening to across Europe, centralization of power as the main capital of the, each country took over all policing rights over all police, rights of sole taxation, uh, rights uh, to do with travel across the, the country, uh, all your all your, your your departments, for instance, in Canada are federalized for travel. You have a, a tax sticker for to travel in your car. You have a registration uh, form to fill out for the federal government to do with travel. It's all federalized now. And all the provinces, which are just states in Canada, just like the U.S., are now answerable to the federal governmental system. That was all planned, as they say. And once they had set up a centralized system, they said over a hundred years ago uh, that eventually they would start making treaties between those centralized governmental systems of power with each other. And then they would start integrating each other's centralized system under a, a unified command. That's what they meant by a new world order run from a world governmental system. The League of Nations was set up initially to be uh, the embryo of it. They knew they wouldn't have all the full powers of it. That blossomed into the United Nations. And today, everything goes through the United Nations. People don't know that if you build a house, every building code to do with the, the foundations, the plumbing, the electricity, everything in that house, every building code comes from the United Nations. They're responsible for the same codes now for across the whole planet. For every department you have in your federal government, every single department, you have an equivalent department set up at the United Nations that deals not only with your government and liaises with those departments in your government, but also liaises with all the other departments, similar ones, across the world and every other country. That's what it was set up to be. 
And yet, if you go into the long-term projections by think tanks, the big think tanks, the futurist ones, the ones that work again with the Club of Rome and all these all the biggie boys, the ones that work with the Department of Defense for Britain, NATO, and for the U.S. governments, and look at the projections for the next 50 years or so, which they've published and are on my archives at cuttingthroughthematrix.com, you will find that um, they talk about this integrated system that's to come in and the chaos it would cause in the meantime. And it also talks about the fact that a world government won't last for more than probably 20 years, and they already have it set up where they're going from there back after this break. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watts and this is Cutting Through the Matrix. Just discussing how we get led along a path in a lifetime. Each one of us lives this X amount of years. We're fed fed information of the reality that we think we're living in. But most folk never realize, and they're certainly not encouraged to realize, that every major event in their life was planned that way by people in think tanks and organizations which they'll sometimes never hear of if they don't look up and do their own uh, self-education. And when I'm talking about major things, I'm talking about even the wars that they have. Sometimes if you go into the writings of the think tanks for Department of Defense, for instance, they'll talk about wars that'll come along in 10 or 20 years' time in certain areas or what they call regions now. They broke the world up into regions at the United Nations. And that's why all this war on terror is all part of a strategy to not only guide us through, bring us through by force, actually, into this new system uh, and where we're, we're not going to have democracy as we ever knew it or the rights that we ever had before. That's not going to come back. In a sense, it's a form of perpetual war, and it has been called perpetual war by the United States um, military themselves in their own publications. And again, I have them on my archive section at cuttingthroughthematrix.com. Perpetual war, under only under warfare tactics, uh, do the public allow themselves to have to be guided or ruled under authoritarian systems. Uh, only then do you sacrifice by having less income, uh, perhaps even rationing of food, uh, restriction of travel, ID cards, that kind of stuff. And the guys who dreamed up this idea for this time right now we're going through were the Club of Rome boys. They were given the task by the biggies, those internationalists who rule the world through finance and commerce, working with governments. They were given the task of finding ways to get the public to basically give up all the values that they used to hold near and dear, such as private property, the right to decide uh, what kind of work or employment they would like to study and go towards, um, where they'd like to work, in which countries they'd like to work, especially their own, and uh, basically carve out uh, a place for themselves in the world doing something they like to do. In this new system, a totalitarian system, um, we're not going to be allowed that. We're under a war scenario. You will sacrifice. We are sacrificing. And because they keep shouting terror, terror all the time, 
we've given up more rights uh, than probably 12 revolutions down through history in different areas have ever given us. They've taken them all literally away from us. They've created so many layers of authoritarian military-style um, organizations that you can't even keep up with them all. We are at, at a stage that Lenin talked about where he said in the West towards the end of the year 2000, he said there will be so many departments, authority-type departments in the Western world that they'll all be standing on each other's toes in their own territories, like too many of them. We already are there. You'll find even when it comes to major terror alerts and so on uh, that maybe a dozen types of SWAT teams will turn up. So many different agencies will turn up. It's happening in Britain as well. Where 30 cars at one point turned up with helicopters for a domestic dispute. And then they start squabbling amongst themselves to see who's going to do the kill. Literally, this is what it's come down to. But not only that, they've been given the authority to do this. This is the projection, as I say, of the Club of Rome uh, done back in the in the 70s when they did their first book. Not their first book, but the second book. It was called The First Global Revolution. And they said that they were given the task of finding ways to get public to give up their rights. And that's what they picked on, a, a war on something or an outside threat of something. So they picked on terror, obviously. But they also picked on another one, another beauty, uh, which is almost in the realms of religion, where you cannot prove or disprove, you have to just believe. And that's what it always comes down to with global warming, or now they're calling it climate change. The Club of Rome, in that same book, also came up with the idea of using global warming. And they said that when they looked at all the different scenarios to bring in a sort of war-type situation, and people to give up their rights and all that. They said that they, they looked at uh, global warming, famine, uh, terrorism, and the like. They said that would fit the bill. That's in their own book. That was then presented to all the big uh, top government departments across the world. They all agreed to go along with it. And lo and behold, in 2001, to kick off the, the century of change, that's what we got introduced. That's what it was all about. They could not have brought in this integrated system without 9-11 happening in 2001. Couldn't have done it. They needed something to kick it off. And I've always said, too, these guys, you know, if they were to put money on, on lottos, they'd win every one of them. Isn't that amazing? Because whenever they, they, they talk in their think tanks about what they would need to happen to accomplish different parts of their goals... It always happens, which is obviously against the law of averages. At least half the time, if you toss a coin, it should head up, head, end up heads or tails. Not with them. Back with more after this break. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. To the National Intel Report, the real talk radio show. 
Hi folks, I am Alan Watts and I'm generally on Cutting Through the Matrix and it will be tonight at 8pm Eastern Time. Standing in for John Stadmiller, talking about the big world, which is not mentioned very much in the newspapers. We get the effects of things, but never the causes given by the media. And what to get to realize eventually, the stage to realize that we're living through a script, a script that many big authors actually wrote about in their own biographies uh, many years ago. If you go into the books written by those who were appointed to the United Nations back at, during World War II and then immediately after World War II, uh, they, they were quite open about the kind of society they were bringing in. They also knew the problems they'd face uh, of um, dis- they'd have to destroy cultures basically in order to then refix the world and amalgamate the countries together under this new this new superculture. Some authors back in the in the early 70s actually wrote about it too, and even the late 60s. Um, I think Desmond Morris was one. He was a zoologist, but he talked about uh, creating the super tribe, as he calls it and how it was inevitable through the conflicts and through uh, the resolution of conflicts through the United Nations and with the massive travel that they had envisaged as the creme de la creme of uh, those of academia and other in different countries across the world all competed and moved across the world to the best jobs, creating forms of uh, super city-states and how... uh, all the rest of them left back in their countries would feel kind of left out. So they'd have to be given a common culture that would take an awful lot of time to to introduce, maybe quite a few generations before you'd have this strange new culture. We haven't been told exactly what it's supposed to be. Um, And they talked about, too, the creation of a world army, a super army, where they'd find a new type of nationalism, something to replace nationalism, and that was to be based on sustainability, the world itself is our goddess-type thing of idea, and how that would have to be substituted for the traditional means of nationalistic governments. So nothing is new. There's nothing new under the sun. And academia plays a, a very, very big part in all of this. When you see that um, professors across the world all belong in the, to their own categories of uh, think tanks, you might call them, or, or international organizations, all involved in political change, in global change, not just academia for academia's sake, but for political change, and how they all work together with governments too, then you understand how this post-democratic system, as they call it, is actually working. To get seen or heard by any government, you have to have access to the government. The average person today literally is as close to government as the serf was to the London kings uh, in the Middle Ages. In other words, you have no access at all. You might be able to send a letter off, now it's an email, but you'll never get even to the person you're after, even the representative. It's so remote, so far removed from redress that we haven't got a chance. The ones who get immediate access to governments are those with the big money, the ones who are authorized non-governmental organizations. They're all lobby groups, including all the big lobby groups that work for the corporations, and they literally have 
um, buildings all around and without and through and through the central governments of every country in the world. They have immediate access. So money talks, power talks, and that's also what they meant by post-democratic systems. I noticed that recently, which is no surprise, and really it's just an after-the-fact admission uh, through a, a, a legal system. They do things without bothering to change the legal books. They do it for maybe 20, 30 years, 40 years, and then eventually put it through the books to make something legal. No one really cared beforehand if it was or wasn't. And uh, they've now allowed corporations to give unlimited funding to their own candidates, which means... In this new feudal system, as Professor Carl Quigley called it, and he did call it a feudal system, the corporations would run the world. Technically, they've already been doing so. And I myself would classify the United Nations as a corporation with its own agenda. I'd classify all the foundations as corporations, not just charities, but corporations. They have the same uh, funding. They have trillions of dollars of funding. Some some of them have trillions of dollars in funding alone, single ones, to do their bidding, and thousands of non-governmental organizations. We don't vote for any of them. We uh, we don't even get into their meetings, to be honest with you. And they're always held in faraway exotic places with lots of security, and you have to get tickets to get in, authorized tickets and ID checks. They don't want the general public involved in these kind of things. So... Democracy, as people thought of democracy, has been circumvented completely and it falls in with the old snobbish idea the general public really don't need to know what's going on. They're irrelevant in a sense. Uh, It's along the techniques or the mentality of Hamilton, who was probably the only one in the U.S. uh, early government who ever came out with his true belief. And he he said, uh, the people, sir... um, as a beast, he said it. The ordinary people he believed were too chaotic to, to put any adequate inputs into how government should be run and therefore should be completely ignored. Academia, with all of its snobbery, uh, is, believes in the same thing. We have to face the facts. Uh, that we, nothing changes in human nature. It really doesn't change. I, I'm always so surprised when we think or were conned into believing that somehow we're far more civilized as a human species than we ever were. And that's utter nonsense. Utter nonsense. Uh, In the Middle Ages, when feudalistic systems run all over Europe, the the serf had no rights whatsoever. Uh, The serf could be killed with impunity uh, just because the the lord was in a bad mood. There was no inquiry, and nothing happened about it. It was okay to do. It wasn't favored all the time, but uh, it was okay. Uh, the serf was bought and sold with the land. And the only thing the serf would be asked is, is uh, um, where do you belong? And he would name uh, the area owned by his feudal lord, by its place name. And if he said that, therefore, he, he basically admitted, I come from this place, and he was bought and sold with this place. And so was his family, if he had one too. They were chattel, basically. 
with the rise of academia taking part in governments with all of its think tanks, myriads of think tanks working, and all of its political organizations of professors and NGOs working with the UN, you have the same system back in place again. Part of the depopulation program agenda is to do with uh, this new feudal system as well. This they want a tidy world so that the, the right kind of people can breed and get along, the ones fittest to survive. But they say that all of the, the post, um, you would call it industrial type society people, uh, are just useless eaters now. They have no function. And being academics and trying to work on logic, they really believe that the general population today really has no function except to pay taxes and then eventually die off because we're all consuming what they see at the top is, is their future resources. They'll keep them alive. They'll sustain them and their offspring. Remember, they truly are Darwinists at heart. And this even though I'm seeing it on this show here, and people will be saying, I don't believe that. It's nothing to do with believe it. Check it out yourself. There's lots of articles put out by professors on this very topic. Tonight at 8 p.m. I'll be reading some of them. And you'll find, yep, they really are like this, and this is what they really say. And not only say, they belong to the powerful institutions that are involved in bringing it all about because they create public policy through what you think is your government's. That's how it's really run. It's not good news. It's not good news, but you cannot fight in any kind of uh, situation or any kind of war unless you understand what you're fighting. You can't do, you, you can't do anything unless you know what you're fighting. Not only that, you, you must understand um, the enemy's techniques. You must also understand your own weaknesses. And you have to be honest about your own weaknesses because your enemy will know them and he will exploit them. And our weaknesses have been used against us since the end of World War II, steadily. It's no accident that we had such an explosion of entertainment since the 40s, speeding up in the 60s till today even getting more and more and more entertainment, more TV channels, more internet stations and so on, more and more and more as the system has been taking apart. People are so into fantasy, they can't tell the difference between reality and fantasy anymore. Many of them can't. And when they go in and switch on their favorite TV station or comedy or whatever, and on come their familiar faces, it doesn't matter if they've just heard on the news that 10 new old factories have just closed or moved to China or the unemployment's up by so many million or whatever. It means nothing to them as long as those same familiar faces come on, then everything obviously must be all right. In their life, that is true. Everything in their life at that moment is still the same. And there's nothing you can watch on television. There's nothing you can enjoy in a movie or comedy that is not completely full of political correct ideas. That's how you're upgraded all the time. You don't consciously think through any particular problem as presented through a drama format or a comedy format, and you're sitting, simply sitting back and they show you what the resolution to that is. And you will copy that resolution without ever consciously figuring it through yourself.
during the 70s, the late 70s, there were years across Europe, especially in Britain, and I traveled all over the place. I'd come back to Britain, and I couldn't believe the news. Every day, it was a series of factories closing down, closing down, closing down, uh, millions of people unemployed. There wasn't a family that didn't have members affected by unemployment. Britain overtook Sweden for the capital of the world for suicides. And there wasn't a street in Britain that some somebody did not commit suicide. Lots of young people too, and older people. And yet he turned on that media, and there's the same old faces on television. People did not want to sit down and talk about the disaster that was happening all around them. They preferred to go into the world of fantasy. Why? Because they were afraid. And those that give us the fantasy know that. They understand that. They understand that. And people wouldn't talk about it because it's almost like talking about it. You bring on bad luck and maybe you would be unemployed tomorrow. The one big difference from the U.S. and Canada that Britain did, the different technique was they didn't tell them that their factories were all being moved offshore. Here, at least they told us that it was all being moved off to China. There were bits in the newspapers, but even then most folk didn't know because they didn't read anything. Their world was always switched into, their spare time was switched into fantasy. They didn't really care what was happening. Most of them flitted through the the transportation of all their factories to China that whole period without knowing that the GATT Treaty helped set it all up. The big international conferences went on talking about how they would transfer it all, who'd pay for it all, which happened to be the taxpayers. And the U.S. taxpayers are still paying for their factories for 10 years after they were set up in China. Or even longer, it could be extended for 20 years if the companies claim that they haven't got an adequate profit that they expected because of the move. What a deal, eh? Couldn't lose there. But most folk are oblivious because they are never in reality. They live in fantasy. And they'll talk fantasy to each other. Or trivia, because just again, like I said before, if you talk about the real stuff, it's almost like bringing on bad luck on yourself. Maybe bad things will happen. The same thing happened in the Soviet Union when the different uh, agencies would raid homes at night and grab people out their beds. And all the streets would be turned out. It turned out the streets, the locals, to witness it under the Soviet law. Partly to terrify them, this might happen to you. And sure enough, they'd grab a family and off they'd go. And nobody would talk about that. They were all there together the night before. No one would talk about it the next day. Our nature is so well understood. It's used as a tool to manipulate us, to keep us out of any kind of action whatsoever. It's used to control us by those who understand it. We're the most studied species on the planet, unfortunately. The Rand Corporation. Amazing too, another non-profit, non-governmental organization. This Rand operation basically ran for the government. This this project during the whole Cold War, right up to the present, they're still churning out reports for governments on projections and how to manage people. And they fed everybody's data Every citizen they could get a hold of in the U.S. and outside the U.S. and the Western countries, 
put you down as numbers and put you through computers to try to find out how predictable you are. And they were putting that through from at least the, the 70s right through under the form of what they called game theory. And what they'd, real, they'd come to believe uh, through us as paranoid schizophrenic who came up with the idea, but who was a professor and therefore he was listened to, was that everybody was, was basically out for themselves. And everyone would turn everyone else in uh, under pressure to save themselves. But with the collection of data on everyone's daily life, what they did, what their hobbies, what interests were, what they worked at, who their friends were, they could find patterns of behavior in little groups, clusters, they call them. And therefore, they could be utterly predictable in their behavior. And the government, see, they like that. They like predictability. They don't like people who come up with ideas and do different things every day of the week. They might not go to this club on a Thursday, they might go somewhere else. They like the people who phone up so-and-so on Tuesday, who go to this meeting on Thursday and attend this poetry class on Friday or whatever else it happens to be. That's predictability. Those are classes safe people. They're out, they're running, they have no problem with them at all. That's also why when they brought up the, the fake guise of terrorism, they labeled the lone wolf as the as the person who you should be worried about. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix just talking about how we're so predictable because we don't realize that so much data has been collected on us since really the 1950s onwards. I watched a documentary on Britain uh, from the 1980s to do with the police powers that were being expanded at that time in Britain. And uh, the, the, the police chief that was in charge for the Home Office for the whole of Britain was being interviewed. Very arrogant character, too, with a uniform. Always be wary of guys in uniforms who are arrogant. Very arrogant. Remember, this was to be public servants. And uh, he was asked about the, the data collection on the citizenry. And he was asked, too, was it true uh, that every street in Britain and other countries, too, had people who were informers, who updated the police with everything that was happening, uh, all to do with gossip, and that records of all this gossip was kept. And he, he said, well, he didn't deny it. And he actually said he wished he had a lot more of it. Well, guess what we do today? Jack C. E. Lull as well or, uh, came out with the, the same thing in one of his books. And he says since the 1950s, everybody in the U.S., Canada, Britain, and across Europe, has had a Cardex system. That's how they used to do it, Cardex systems, before they used the big computers, eventually blossomed into computers, uh, where same thing was happening. The police had people everywhere who fed the data to them on different customers and restaurants, cafes, people you'd pop in to see in the morning, grab a cup of coffee, off you'd go, that kind of stuff. You have no idea how we've been spied on. And we think it's only since 9-11 happened in 2001 that all of this started. Utter nonsense. Utter nonsense. 
power doesn't run by any kind of free democratic principle. It does not keep power that way. Power is pretty well tyrannical. And to be honest with you, there's never been a system created where the public had the inputs to find out what was going on or the access to it. Never been a a system. Because you've always had these powerful institutions and money boys running the show. Let's be honest, if if, uh, the Bank of America CEO or something or the Bank of Canada uh, CEO wants to talk to a prime minister and you happen to somehow, under some miracle, uh, and, and God knows how many letters you've written and agreements you've made and checkups you've had to make sure you're fit to get in, actually sat in a waiting room, who do you think is going to take first? And you know that you wouldn't even get in there to see them. So, so much for democracy. The Club of Rome said, and Margaret Thatcher said the same thing when she left politics. She said, I now belong to a parallel government. She says the parallel government can get all the work done, get the plans done, not just debated, but actually put into action because they're not responsible to the public. The Club of Rome said the same thing. They said democracy had too many competing parties, all fighting, vying for power, that they could never get anything done with the big agenda. They already had an agenda. How do you get it done? Which tells you it was above democracy of any kind. But they couldn't get it done. Now, I think I hear music coming in. It's very, very faint, if there is. And maybe the brakes will be back after this break.